All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my energetic co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. And I said energetic because, Mark, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, uh, this I is, was say, this is the longest break we've always. taken. I feel like, you know, we haven't been together for it's, – it's coming up on almost a month. I mean, it, it's mm. actually only 21 days, but it feels longer. Um, and, and, you know, a month ago, we were together. That was kind of the last time we did a show. Yeah. And – you know, I, that was the day, you know, Bitcoin was down 20% that day. The markets were crashing. Everybody was like, Powell's going to, you know, raise rates. And, and I said, you know, I should have worn the red pants today, but I, I wore the, the Bitcoin orange pants. So I am taking full credit, 100% for the 50%. Bitcoin is up 50, 50% since that day in, in four short weeks. Uh, so I, I am wearing the, the Bitcoin orange pants today. I have the the Bitcoin bull sock game going, so the cape wow. and uh, the big green candles, and I I'm I'm pretty psyched about um, I'm officially declaring uh, three weeks from Tuesday this coming Tuesday is the official start of crypto summer. Mm. That also happens to be my birthday, but that's that's going to be the official start of crypto summer. That's very precise. That's very precise. And I, I tend to agree with you. What, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it's been a very good couple of weeks for crypto. What do you attribute the, uh, you know, sometimes there's not necessarily a reason for why price does no what more it does. Sellers. But, mm. There's no more sellers, yeah. right? Sellers are gone. All the big leveraged bad guys are gone. And it turns out that, uh, I just did a presentation on this yesterday. Um, hash rate, new all-time high. Number of wallets, new all-time high. Number of wallets with greater than 0.1 Bitcoin, new all-time high. Transaction size and volume, not all-time high, but, but coming back to, to being close. Mm. And all of those fundamentals are, are and, and my point of my presentation yesterday was, you know, crypto summer, uh, you know, surfing on a wave of global liquidity. China hmm. printed a trillion dollars since October. Trillion with a T. Japan, uh, another couple hundred billion. The Fed put 300 billion back on their balance sheet. So, you know, we've got a trillion and a half dollars of liquidity sloshing around. And turns out people buy things that that they like and there's a whole bunch of people that that like crypto and 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 bitcoin and eth are the are the biggest beneficiaries but it's it's going down the ladder too yeah now when it comes to uh eth we've actually got a so we're recording this on april 14th and we've actually got the the long-awaited chapella upgrade for the uninitiated that is when um you as an eth staker are finally allowed to withdraw your ethereum and this has been the subject of a whole bunch of speculation within the crypto community. And basically, you know, people are of sort of two minds. And I think the consensus forming has been, hey, some people have had their ETH locked up in this contract for a very, very long time. And people should be careful because, you know, people are going to need liquidity. We're just a couple of days away from tax day. People have been accruing rewards. They're going to need to pay their taxes. And there's going to be a decent amount of sell pressure, you know. It's looking like that might not actually be validated. And the other, the flip side of that, the slightly more bullish take is that, look, uh, staking is a core part of Ethereum, the protocol. It's a sign of health. And now that 
you know, the Chappella upgrade is going to be live. People will understand and know that they can withdraw their Ethereum. It's not theoretical. There will actually be proof that staking contract will be de-risked and actually more people will end up staking and that'll be good for Ethereum's price. Yeah. So Mark, we'd love to know your kind of thoughts on this whole Shanghai Chappella upgrade and your thoughts kind of on that, the short-term price impact for Ethereum and then like more longer term. Uh, I'm with you. I, I just look at, at the data, right? Yeah. <laughs> the data is there's there's more buyers than sellers of of ETH. ETH, I think, and I, I think I have this right, over the past couple of weeks has, has even outperformed BTC. I mean, you know, it was up 5% yesterday. You know, it crashed through 2000 and hit 2100 very quickly. So I... I kind of come down on on the latter part of your analysis to to say, mm. yes, there's a a legitimate fear that you know people would would unlock or or you know de-risk some portion of of you know what they've been staking, but I I kind of come to it as there's no evidence of that right there there's just there's just no evidence in the markets of big liquidations of of really anything. And you know there there's some you know lower level coins that that have just been going batshit crazy, um, so it's I think it's interesting. Mark, we call those small cap gems. Small, small cap, cap gems, gems. gems. <laughs> I, I like it. Small cap yeah. gems. Yeah, but this is the uh, this is the ETH versus Bitcoin. For those of you who are following along via yeah, video, the last uh, right. five days looking at ETH versus Bitcoin. Market jump in uh, in ETH USD here over the just the last day or so. So I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, and, and you know, the, I guess the caveat is that sometimes the market gets this wrong initially. So I would still always be careful. And you know, none of this is financial advice, but definitely things are looking up for for crypto. And you know, me personally, I'm more optimistic than I've been in a little while. I feel like I've been optimistic about this entire time. But uh, yeah, it's <laughs> I, tough. It's tough to maintain optimism and energy in in the face of constant beatings right you know the mm. whole line you know the beatings will continue until morale improves well yeah. morale ain't gonna improve <laughs> i mean you know you beat people down and and they will they will sink lower and lower and and it was just it was a summer of beatings last yeah. year or fall yeah. the fall of beatings and you know, bad people doing bad things and then government actors doing bad things. And, and suddenly there's this reprieve. Now, look, I, I do think it's the calm before the storm. I, I don't think that then, then they fight you phase is over. I think it's, it's going to come back with us. You know, Ms. Warren is assembling her crypto army. Could there be a dumber, a, literally a dumber campaign slogan than that? I mean, well, it's, it's a good thing to rally around if you, but if it's you not. are a crypto supporter. The average person that votes for Ms. Warren doesn't even know what crypto is. I, I, and no, I don't I, mean I've, that derogatorily. <laughs> I'm just saying they have no idea, right? No, I meant for crypto people, it's a good thing to rally around. Oh, it's like okay. such an anti- uh, yes, yes, Yeah, yes. yeah. But, but, it's like, I mean, come on. It, it's, it's so inane. It's, I don't know. It's, but it's, look, this is, this is, What's happening right now everywhere? You know, um, yeah. It, I mean, it's still such early days for crypto. I, you know, I was. Um, I know you were in Costa Rica, and I was just uh, on vacation. I was in uh, Texas, and I was reading. Um, I've, I've referenced this on the podcast before, but I was reading the uh, the biography of 
uh, you know, the Ron Chernow biography of uh, yeah. John Rockefeller. So it's yep. the book Titan, which I'd highly, very long, but I would highly recommend it. So yeah, long. super good. He's got a whole bunch of great, uh, you know, biographies and he, um, you know, just reading about the early days of oil. So one of the funny things about Standard Oil that I felt very silly going into it, I thought he made all this money uh, selling, you know, crude oil for for cars. No, it was, he actually made all that money on the kerosene market. You know, pre, you know, the vast majority of Standard Oil came before the the automobile. It's unbelievable, but, <laughs> which and, I just didn't know. know. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's and and the thing that people don't know, and I, I tell people yeah. this all the time. I mean, the man was a mad genius. Now he was also he was. a bad badass. I mean, he was kind of a bad guy. I mean, he made, I was he made more people disappear than, than the Clintons. I mean, he, he disappeared a lot of people like you strike really? against one of his factories, you disappeared. I mean, it was, it was ugly. I didn't know, but uh, you know, he, the parallels to it is, you know, I just, I, I couldn't help, but I was like looking at this through the lens of, I actually took a photo of one of the, one of the pages, but I'm, I'm not going to read it because it's very long, but basically, you know, the whole idea is that, you know, oil back then was there'd be these gushers, right? There'd be, it was very uh, speculative, very boom bust type industry where oil would be discovered. They called it the, you know, there'd be like a big gusher. As soon as word got out of a big gusher, you know, the price would go way down for a very long period of time. There would be these boom towns that would rise up yep. around where a big gusher was found and then they would go away. You know, even down to um even down to like, you know, people were very concerned about fire back then. People were very worried about investing in refineries because, you know, all this stuff was super flammable and all the structures that the refining was done in was in wood. Same like very similar to DeFi hacks, right? Like you could uh, you, it was considered so a very similar. risky investment. It's a, it's a great, it's a great analogy. And again, what people don't know, and I think it's interesting that people don't know, is the reason we operate our cars on gasoline instead of either electricity, which at the time in 1903, the American Electric Vehicle Corp was the largest car company in America. They made the first horseless carriages. They were electric. Really? They got 47 miles to a charge um, and these big giant lead acid batteries. And But that's what, that's what it was. It was the biggest car company in the world. And this guy, Henry Ford, uh, had designed this new car called the Model T. And he was going to use grain alcohol to run the combustion engine. And his friend, John D. Rockefeller, said, well, Hank, I got this stuff that I flush down the river because when you create uh, lamp oil, kerosene yeah. from, you know, oil, you have this effluent, this, this waste called gasoline. And he was literally flushing it down the river and the that rivers was... would catch on fire. I Not know. Yeah. Just the buildings, like the Cuyahoga river would catch on fire. And yeah. he's like, Hank, here's what we're going to do. You give me some of your company. I'll give you some of my company. And we'll use this gasoline in the engine and we'll put American electric vehicle out of business. And that's why we run on internal combustion engines. And now we're going back, you know, towards EV, but it's, it's funny. I mean, yeah. Individuals are very, very, I mean, look, and he was before, and it's hard to, it's hard to, compare it's like comparing michael and lebron john d rockefeller bill gates who was the more ruthless businessman i don't know that'd be tough Stop. it was also you know you, you have to you have to take in into account the time period that he was operating in which the, the, you know 
there were no rules. I mean, even, <laughs> even here, you know, <laughs> no there, there were no rules. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically did write the playbook for, for corporate America. And, you know, w- one of the things that I didn't really understand the, the whole idea of, you know, being a joint stock issue, like a joint stock kind of corporation, yes. that was an old structure, right? That like the, the East India company, you know, they yes. kind of invented, but I didn't realize it had basically gone unused. And one yes. of the big challenges that uh, Standard Oil had was at the time that he was operating, you couldn't operate in multiple states. Correct. So he, there was a bit of a sort of corporate, um, corporate uh, innovation, you know, that happened where basically he had a, a trust, you know, so you couldn't right. operate in multiple different well, That's states. why he had Standard Oil of Indiana, Standard Oil of California. Standard, I, know. I mean, he created individual companies to get around this. And look, all of antitrust law today, I, 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 pretty much all, I mean, it might not be absolutely all, but pretty much all is because of Standard Oil. Because yeah. the government said, whoa, 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 this guy, way too powerful. And, mm-hmm. and he was the most powerful person in, until the, the guys from Sullivan and Cromwell kind of took over DC and they've been in charge for a while. But. So here's another mind blowing fact. When they went after Standard Oil to break it up, you know how the entire Justice Department in Washington, D.C. was 18 lawyers. <laughs> that blow your mind? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was reading that and I, I couldn't, couldn't believe that. I mean, it was just a totally, totally different time. And if you, you know, I mean, he, he also did, uh, you know, create order out of an industry that was complete, complete chaos, um, you know, in in. In not necessarily a particularly good way, but let, let, let's uh, let's get into some some more contemporary stuff here. And uh, I've got some charts for you because uh, we had this was CPI week. Uh, we also yep. got PPI this week as well. Well, it's amazing, Michael, as, as you're pulling up that chart. It's amazing how no one's talking about inflation anymore. I mean, it's it's gone. I know. It's gone. I, know. I mean, literally yeah. gone. I mean, if you yeah. do a Google search for what is that that Google Analytics thing for searches on inflation. It's gone back to, to nothing. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, I think, you know, the reason for that is it's definitely the consensus is definitely that inflation has peaked. And there's a lot of debate about how sticky certain components of inflation are going to be and how long it's going to be with us. But generally, people aren't very worried that it's going up anymore. So what we're looking at here is a chart of core CPI uh, year over year uh, versus U.S. CPI year over year. So, you know, th- this was... Um, uh, you know, I, I had kind of unplugged for the last week, so I was I kind of tuned in a little bit for for when the the CPI reading was published on on Wednesday at eight thirty, and uh, you know we had core coming in over headline CPI. We had five point six versus uh, five point zero, um, which was you know pretty interesting to me. Um, we've also we've got here uh, U.S. core CPI year over year percent. Uh, so this is the contribution by you know, specific categories here. Look at those orange lines. We talked about this. We said it was going to happen. Yep. Oil prices down year over year. Yeah. And actually, you know, I don't have this chart here, but if you look at the, you know, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it's half of what it was at one point. There was definitely an enormous amount of selling. So I don't don't know if the the administration is concerned about oil prices going back up, but uh, you definitely wouldn't want to you know, you, you definitely wouldn't want a situation where they have to refill the SPR and oil prices are going back up. But yeah, Mark, what, what do you think when you're- exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly, I mean, look, that's why Saudi cut production, yeah. right? Saudi has said, you know what? We got new friends mm. and these new friends, they treat us better. Mm. And I, look, I, I think 
we're going to look back 10 years from now and what this current administration did to mess up this, you know, 50 year relationship with OPEC and, and Saudi. I mean, people are, are, are going to, it's, it's going to be shocking. It's going to be shocking. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at, um, I mean, what, so basically the, you know, the big component that's still in, you know, core CPI is, uh, is shelter. And we knew that that was going to be the case, right? Because shelter lags quite a bit. Um, but you know, that makes up, you know, almost, you know, like three and a half percent basically of, yep. uh, of, of headline or, or sorry, of core year over year. So what, what, what are your other kind of takeaways just looking at this chart? Any surprises to you? I mean, no surprises at all. I mean, just as, as we've been talking about that, the two things that really caused the spike in in CPI, which were oil prices and, and used car prices, you know, 70 plus percent have ameliorated and, and mm. gone away. And I think they'll continue. Although I do think oil, because of this new, you know, pact between Saudi, Russia and China, does have some potential to to get a little dicey um, mm. over the next few months. So, but I look. I think you. I think the supply chain is going to be mostly fixed within the next few months. China's fully reopened. I mean, we did a, a webinar with our China team the other day, and you know, a month ago we sent our analyst out with this iPhone, and she took a picture, and it was like a neutron bomb went off. I mean, there was no one on mm. the streets. There was no cars. And she went out a couple weeks ago, same same spot, and it was like it never. I mean, never, never happened. I mean, smog. I mean, cars. No one. I mean, everyone was out. You know, big shopping bags. I mean, it. So, so that's. I, I think that's that's going to get fixed, and um, I think the shelter thing is. Look, owner's equivalent rent. I've always thought was a dumb concept, right? The rent you charge yourself to rent your house from yourself. Okay, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I understand why they took it, why they took housing prices out and put that in because it's more stable and they can control it. And I get it because the, the goal of the government actually is to have the lowest CPI number possible, mm-hmm. full stop. And so the fact that it went up and that they lost control is telling because, and the reason they, they want, it, want it low is, all of the entitlement programs are linked yeah. to CPI. Mm-hmm. And that's why CPI has been manipulated. If you go to shadowstats.com, John, um, I can't remember his last name. Um, and, and if you calculated <laughs> inflation the way we did in the 80s, you know, we're at 10%. If you did it the way we did in the 90s, we're at like 12 or 13%. And I don't really think that's true. Um, 
but but I'm 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 open to the idea that look housing prices probably should be a meaningful component of this quote unquote idea of inflation because it it does imply the ability or inability of the average family to you know own a home buy things you know that that's real and you know the average young family today has basically been priced out of of most markets especially with with rates now where they are i mean there's just no way it's top of mind for people you know all this stuff i mean it was uh you know even in when i was you know in texas this this week on you know just sitting around a campfire people were talking about how crazy rent was and you know one couple was talking about how they moved out of seattle because it was too expensive there moved to texas now they're considering moving to an even more rural part of texas like right. it's top of mind for people for sure so there's kind of these government statistics which financial markets care a lot about but then there's just the popular discourse um and people real real life is is hard i mm-hmm. mean i i went to lunch with a guy um you know it's one of the things i love right i'll run into somebody on twitter and they'll say hey you want to get together and there's probably somebody who would say that you know you should you shouldn't meet everyone you meet on Twitter in in, in real life, um, but went and had lunch with this guy. Great guy runs a actually runs a very cool business that all of us sadly are going to need, which is home health for aging parents. And you know we chat about a bunch of stuff, but you know he picked up the lunch tab and two guys in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, not New York, not Seattle. You know it was almost fifty bucks. And we didn't even have anything. I mean, we had a normal lunch at a pizza place. It was, it was crazy. And so yeah. that level of expenditure, um, well, I mean, little things. Like I you know, took uh, the little guy uh, down to Costa Rica for, for spring break. So we wanted to do the rainforest thing. And... You know, the place we stayed was was a nice place. It wasn't like the, you know, Taj Mahal. But every little thing we did, like we did rock climbing and, you know, oh, that's extra. And we did this little rafting trip. Oh, that's extra. And, Mm. you know, he wanted a Coco Loco drink, you know, the the virgin one. And, you know, that was like seven bucks. I'm like, okay, you know, we're captive. We can't go anyplace else. We're in the middle of the rainforest. There's no other stores around. I get it. You can charge us whatever, but I, yeah, things are expensive. They are. And, you know, I think your point about entitlements is a super important one. I don't know how much you've been following and I haven't been, you know, diving super deep into it, but I've been kind of following the headlines of what's going on in France, you know, which is pretty interesting. Like they tried to raise their retirement age by two years and people are literally rioting in the streets. Yes. I mean, yes. you know, fire, you know, there's, uh, which is know, insane. I, it's everyone yeah, it's needs great. to do this and, and yeah. it's not wrong. It's not bad. I mean, the reality is when these entitlement programs were set up, the average life expectancy was lower, right? People died. I mean, when, when social security was set up, the average life expectancy was 58. They set the age at 65. That was, that was a good plan. Now the life expectancy is 78, and we should definitely move it up. But it just the, the problem with entitlements is an entitlement is a promise you make to yourself 
that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for? I, you know, I, Who I agree. wouldn't vote for that? Who wouldn't yeah. vote for that? Yeah. I, I think that is the, um, that is the problem. I mean, I think whether it was with good intentions or not, a lot, a large group of people were given an unrealistic expectation about, yeah. yeah, like the entitlements that they, that they were owed based on their, based on the work that they did, or, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but there, there's a lot of stuff that's going to need to get squared over the coming well, years. because thing, right? Telling people that, okay, you can't start collecting for another couple of years. Okay. Let's think about that. We're not saying you're going to collect less. Because we now we now know you're going to live longer on average, okay? So you're actually going to get more from the system than we thought 20 years ago. And we're not asking you to put more in, right? I mean, we're taking the same amount. But people feel like you're taking something from them. Like, but, but you've been given this. And mm. it says, no, 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 no. I put the money in my money. Like, I, I shouldn't tell this on my mom, but my mom believes... There's a little pot in D.C. called Judy's Money. Mm. I'm like, Mom, there's, there's no pot. She says, what? No, I put all this money in. I'm like, I know, but it went to your parents, and now I'm paying for you and Dad, and then my kids will have to pay for me. That, that, that's the way we have run it. I mean, every place in the world other than Singapore runs it like a pay-as-you-go system, not like an insurance company. Look, you can solve the whole thing. You can solve all of entitlement problems by turning them into insurance companies and running them like insurance companies and investing the money in things that, that produce wealth and, and innovation. And, and, and that would solve all the problem, but, but you know, nobody wants to do that. I always joke. It's, it's the one thing I was not a big W fan at the time. I like him now, but it was the one thing he said that I thought was smart. Now his timing was bad, right? He wanted to do it right in 2000, but he'd said, look, we need to invest the money in social security. Yes, you do. You can't just leave it on a ledger, say not, not a ledger like thing, but you can't just leave it in, you know, on a, on a spreadsheet saying, well, when Jimmy and Johnny pay in, in the future, we'll pay out John and Mary, Mm -mm. invest the money, Mm. make it grow. And then you'll have the money to pay Jimmy and Johnny and, you know, everybody else. Yeah. Mark, what do you, like, just zooming out for a second, like, where do you think we're sort of at in the, in the business cycle here? Because, you know, there are a couple of uh, factors that I just have a little bit of trouble squaring. So we just talked about, there's still a, at least headline, there's a five handle on inflation now, which is, you know, going down, but it's definitely not near the level the Fed wants, which is 2%. There's still probably stress in the banking system, right? So It seems like the Fed has kind of solved the problem for now with this BTFP facility. There's actually a great chart here that uh, colleague Jack Farley put together. I'm going to show this. Um, but that's like, it seems like the problem has been at least temporarily solved for now. Yep. But, you know, there's still like kind of the worry that, you know, we can't push too far. This is kind of a cool, this is a use of the discount window, which has been around for, yep. you know, 100 years. And then there's the use of the BTFP facility, which has been going up and up. So it's just a cool chart to, to look at right next to each other. Um, and then there's also kind of these forward looking economic indicators, which I was kind of just showing this chart, but PPI is turning around, you know, so yeah. we've got, um, you know, kind of sig- significantly negative PPI here. So, you know, 
putting all these factors together, like where, where do you just think we are in the, in the business cycle right Look, now? I, I think, um, I think the economy is slow, slow ish, slow ish. Mm. Um, you know, I think, I think first quarter number is going to disappoint, you know, fourth quarter number got revised down. Still not, not horrible. And the last year, even though they're not going to call it, was a recession. It was a mm. mild recession, you know, 1% year over year, 0.9 year over year GDP. That, that's recession. That's a 2001-esque recession. And I, I think in the absence of the global wave of liquidity, right, had China not printed a trillion dollars, had you know, Kurodasan as his, you know, going away present, not printed another 200 billion, had the Fed not stepped in with Silicon Valley at all with this BTFP. Um, I, I, I would be more negative on growth. Mm. I would say, you know, negative GDP growth in Q1. I would say negative GDP growth in, in Q2. I, I don't see that, right? I see a one handle in Q1. Um, and, and look, I, I think the, the, the biggest indicator is the 10 year, the 10 year yield has collapsed, right? It's down from four something to 3.4, something like that. Mm. And that's telling you that growth is decelerating, not accelerating. Yet, if you look at Chinese liquidity provision forwarded six months and PMIs, it would tell us that PMIs have troughed and that economic activity is going to rise, albeit slowly. But so I, I think we're going to avert the hard crash landing. Um, this idea of no landing, I, I think that's just a silly idea. There, there'll be a landing. And I think you see it in, in activity, right? I went to a restaurant with the family the other night and uh, it was bustling. It wasn't slammed, but it was bustling. And again, this is a nice restaurant in, you know, we don't have very many super nice restaurants in, in Chapel Hill, but we have a couple of nice restaurants. And, um, and it, was, it was full and that, that's, that's a good indicator. Um, you know, the airport over spring break slammed, slammed a lot of people traveling for spring break. So, you know, yet traffic, I don't know, I don't know about where you are, but traffic is a little bit lighter than it was. Um, that's usually an indicator to me of, of economic growth. Um, but I, so to answer your question, where are we in the business cycle? I think we are. I think we're past the trough. I think we troughed, you know, middle of last year, third quarter, or something like that. Um, yeah. We kind of we fudged the numbers with the SPR, right? We would have had much worse GDP prints last year if we hadn't drained the SPR and double counted the oil. I think that's a scam, but, but people believe it. Um, okay. Uh, if they start reversing that and start putting oil back in, um, that could juice the, or that, that could, that could hurt the numbers the other way. Um, 
but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I think a lot of people were waiting for kind of this big biblical, you know, sort of uh, comeuppance, right? Post, it was the largest withdrawal of liquidity, you know, in, you know, pick your time frame. Um, and we didn't really get that. You know, we got it in crypto for sure. Yeah. Uh, definitely, definitely a rough 2022 for if you were operating in crypto. But, you know, if you look at a chart of the S&P, you know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't really that bad. Um, well, but remember the 60-40 worst year ever. 140 years of data. Bonds got smoked. Your average got smoked too. 401k yeah. had its worst year ever. Now it, it wasn't a, you know, 401k turns into 201k, like the global financial crisis or, or 2000, <laughs> yeah. but it was ugly. I mean, it was ugly. And, and if you owned tech stocks, ugly, ugly, right? ugly. I mean, yeah. we're talking down 35, 40%. And yeah, you've rallied back 15, but you're still down a lot. And, and I think that's the part where you know, I got in this interesting debate. There, there's I won't name names, but there's there's this guy out there, and I, I like him. I mean, he's a he's a, a reasonable reasonable guy, but he's on this toot about how he doesn't understand why everybody thinks things are bad. Everything is awesome, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, "Oh, look, mm. stocks are back towards all time highs." I'm like, "What? Only yeah. because we're denominating in a currency that's getting devalued." Mm. I said, if you denominate the S&P in gold, it's dead flat. And I, I showed this chart yesterday. If you look at the last 20 years, okay, all of the increase in equity is the Fed balance sheet. 100% of it. 100% of it. And so when equities rolled over last year because they tried the QT thing, what did they do globally? Turned it back on. The QE is back on. And we are back to QE infinity. And because you have to, right? You can't have this entitlement program. And this is everywhere. This is Western Europe, Japan, US, all have the same problem. Aging population that's been promised all this stuff. You put their money into these passive 401ks, 403bs, and you cannot have a situation where the value goes down and they have to cover it. They don't have the money. There's no savings. Savings rate is plummeted. It's, it's plumbing new all-time lows. And that mythic savings that, you know, by handing out the money in the, in the, the, in the uh, lockdowns, that wasn't savings. You know, you counted as savings, but it wasn't savings. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers. And you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10 because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. So yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on the balance sheet here because there's there's... 
I mean, it's almost like this MacGuffin or something like that. I, it, it, pe- people debate you know, endlessly about what this, the Fed balance sheet really means, ultimately. I have kind of a, a theory, like a uh, left bell curve sort of theory about, about what this really is. But you know, I, I think the, the consistent thing about the Fed's balance sheet is that they haven't really been able to get it down. Right. You know, various Fed chairs have said, have pledged and said, hey, this is not going to be permanent when we do something like QE. And they always are, you know, somewhat successful in, you know, tapering and then actually, you know, selling off uh, some of the assets in the Fed's balance sheet. But then something happens. Right. And for at the end of 2018 or 2019, it was the we got the pivot for uh, the pal pivot, which he's sort of famous for. And, you know, similarly, you know. People point to the BTFP and say, hey, well, that's not QE. And I agree, it's definitely not. It's a lifeline to the banks. But on the other hand, you know, they couldn't they couldn't get too far into uh selling assets off the Fed's balance sheet here. So Mark, what, what do you kind of think when you when you well, see this chart? It, it, QT <laughs> Okay, fine. It's not, you know, it's not QE, you know, it's not quantitative easing, but it's a provision of capital mm-hmm. to a system that doesn't balance. That's at the end of the day what, what the Federal Reserve is, right? It's not a bank, okay? It's not federal. It doesn't have any reserves. There are no deposits, right? It's not any of the things that, that people think. It's, it's not a bank. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is a private corporation that has a mission essentially to liquefy balance sheets of banks, right? That's his job. So it would be the lender of last resort and, and essentially create money out of, out of thin air by lending money to, to these institutions. And then they can deposit it back with the Fed and earn interest, or they can buy government bonds. And, you know, the, they, they can also buy equities, even though they're not supposed to. Um, that happens. You look at the bank balance sheets, they have, actually have a whole bunch of equities, like, but they're not supposed to do that. But so I, it's, it's Ponzi-nomics, Michael. It's literally Ponzi-nomics. It is, what that chart that you just showed says to me is, and it's the same chart in the Bank of Japan, but worse on steroids, right? It's an even you know steeper slope, 60 degree line. Same at the ECB, same at the Bank of Japan. When, when you start down the road of a debt-fueled expansion, okay, where if, if, if I have a dollar of equity and you have a dollar of equity and we combine those two dollars and we start a business and we go out and we, we you know, generate sales and, and we make mama dollar and papa dollar and make more dollars, okay, great. That's good. We worked hard, made some money. But... If we say, all right, mama dollar and papa dollar, hey, bank, give us 10 bucks. So we have 12 bucks to go you know, buy more stuff. And, and in the early days of debt, it's amazing, right? You get more than the dollar of debt impact on incremental GDP because you know there's actually stuff that people want and people need. And then as you go on, when the debt gets higher and higher and higher, the incremental return to that incremental dollar of debt falls. You get to a point, actually, where it actually has a negative return, right? Because how many 
TikToks can you watch? How many, Apparently you know, infinite. how many tchotchkes <laughs> can you buy for your shelves? I don't got room on my shelves for any more tchotchkes. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many books can you stack up and never read, right? At some point, you're just done. And so then you say, well, experiences. Okay, now it's experiences. Okay, fine. But again, there's only so many hours in the day. You got to sleep, stuff like that. So at some point, we, we reach, and I think we have reached in many cases, the tipping point where now we're generating debt and spending just because we have to. It's like a shark, right? If a shark doesn't keep moving, it, it, down, it dies. And, you know, look at, look at the government and deficits, massive deficits. Well, how do you fund a deficit? You have to issue debt. Well, who buys the debt? Well, if the rest of the world says, I don't want your debt, then the central bank's got to buy it. And if you look at the central banks, that's what they do. They just keep buying those government bonds. And the funny thing is, you know, Kyle Bass was screaming about this for years about Japan, that it had to end badly. Well, it hasn't, right? Japan today at 226% of debt to GDP on the Bank of Japan balance sheet is is mind-numbingly interesting. It's still functional. It shouldn't work. I know. But it did, and it does. And you go to Tokyo, it's a pretty cool place. It is. And, you know, I think with the benefit of hindsight, I, the, the challenge here is I don't think many people, Mark, sit there and think, hey, we can run a deficit forever into perpetuity. The, the challenge is, right, the amount of t- like timing. So I think one of the problems with this, and there's like a little bit of a boy who cried wolf syndrome. So I was, do, I, you know, I, I talked to Jim last week and I, I read this book, uh, you know, you probably read it as well, uh, Market Wizards. And uh you know, that was written by a guy named Jack Schwager back in 1989. And uh, and he interviewed all these great traders and investors. Uh, you know, Paul Tudor Jones is in there. And back then in the in the late 80s, you know, they were talking about, you know, the, the U.S. has started to run a deficit. We are going to go into hyperinflation even back then. And in hindsight, that sounds very silly. You know, there's obviously a lot of room to run. We are, you know, the dominant superpower in the world. Of course, we've got a lot of good credit. We don't have infinite credit. So the question is, so for years now, for like 30 years, we've had people saying this system's going to come to an end. And it's kind of given rise to this other, well, hey, you guys have been saying this for a long time and it hasn't happened. So you're probably going to continue to be wrong. And those people are probably going to continue to be right for a period of time. But ultimately, you know, you know, household, you know, there's this kind of line about how household finance isn't like governance finance, government finance. It's not really, but it is in the end. You know, at the in the end, it it actually is exactly the same. You know, um, and the U.S. has all these. You know, your word is exactly right. These entitlements, like we have written checks that we can cash, but we have to print money to cash those checks, and that is going to have consequences. Yeah, that's going to have consequences. That's and, and the, the way that I feel about the it. The reality is, we will get through it. This is the weird part, right? Yeah, we, we will. will get through it. And the funny part to me is always 10 years out, 20 years out, looking back, we'll have this, this quaint notion that, oh, you know, remember the good old days when, you know, Coca-Cola was only $4 instead of $20? 
And, and for whatever reason, we convince ourselves that, that the current prices are always reasonable. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is everything devalues together. So incomes go up, prices go up, home prices go up, everything's more expensive. I mean, if you look at that, you know, we've all seen it, right? In 1950, a house was $5,000 and a, or $25,000 and a car was $3,000 and, and the average income was, you know, $2,000 or whatever it was. And then 20 years later, those numbers all double. And then 30 years later, those numbers all treble. And, you know, it's, 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 it's funny. It's like, you, you, I love to pick on Tesla, but you know, a $75,000 Tesla, right? It's a rich person car. That is not a car for the masses. That is a rich person car. Mm. But at some point, a $75,000 car is going to be an economy car, right? Mm. I mean, the idea that you could ever spend, if when, when I was growing up, there weren't cars. I mean, Lamborghinis and, and Ferraris, but... There were no car. Even Mercedes didn't cost seventy five thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, and Mercedes was it right in terms of luxury? There was no Lexus. There was no you know nothing. And yeah. you know now it just it just becomes commonplace. Or I, I don't know if you tried to go to a well, you just you tried to go to a concert. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what the ticket costs. I don't even want to tell you. No, yeah, no, I know, and 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 you think that's normal, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I remember buying a ticket to a concert for the same people you saw mm-hmm. 40 years ago, or you know, and it was like $10. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. literally $10. How many $10 concerts today? Yeah. Now, Mark, the, and I know but we've, we've, we've got, yeah, we've got a couple more minutes here, but you know, I've got a, you know, one thing that I have been struggling to square a little bit mentally is, you know, when I look at, and I've got a, I've got a bias, you know, I operate in, in crypto. So I'm uh, kind of, I have a naturally maybe tilted long bias on that space. I'm very uh, constructive on it. But, you know, when I kind of look out into the world of crypto, I kind of see, you know, everything kind of bottomed, I think, in November and December last year around FTX. So FTX imploded. We didn't put in a new low. All the sellers basically did what they were going to do. And now I, I totally agree with kind of your, you know, no sellers left basically in, in this market. And I, I think it's, I think it's, going to do very well. On the other hand, you know, I kind of look out into the broader economy and it's like maybe there is still another, you know, shoe to to drop. Um that now the problem historically is that there's been a strong correlation in between the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum and the rest of crypto more broadly and kind of like high value tech stocks, right? Or high growth tech stocks. So, I'm having trouble squaring these things in my head where I feel very uh constructive and optimistic on crypto as a space, but I don't feel particularly constructive on uh, you know, sort of the economy and and the stock market in general. So, do you also agree with that, or do you? Am I missing something there, or, or no, how would you look, kind I, of square think, that circle? I think part of the challenge for you, for me, for, for you know, people like Jack, for people like Jim, that that actually look at data, mm. is we kind of get polluted, and and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but. We and pollute is maybe the wrong word, but but we get. I think I know what you mean. We get a yeah. we get a dose of of reality, right? Mm. And when when you look at at the actual data, and you look at you know 
economic slowing and deglobalization and you know closing of, of trade routes and and you look at what just happened with China and Saudi and, and Russia and what that means for the petrodollar system, it's really pretty easy to get kind of, I won't say bearish, but definitely concerned that, like I said, there's another shoe to drop and and but here's the thing. And, and this was the, the point of, of the global liquidity wave. Um, the world has decided. And, and look, I, and when I say the world, I, I do mean that. I think you know, every year around WEF, the leaders get together and the finance people, this, the central bankers, which this kind of does piss me off, right? Because I remember a time when the central banks were not important. They were not gods. They were not the most important people in the world. Now they are because they are keeping the Ponzi afloat. And what they decided was to turn the spigots back on. And you can call it whatever you want. You can call it QE. You can call it not QT. You can call it, you know, lender of last resort. You can call it BTFD, whatever you want to call it. Doesn't matter. Hundreds of billions by trillions of dollars are flowing into the global economy. And that is going to push risk assets. And look, Look at the risk assets. Look, the, the valuations of things like Apple, stupid, stupid, right? The company's not growing. It is not growing a top line at all, like zero. Same thing with Amazon, same thing with Netflix. They're, they're not growing. But yet, we've got them right back. All of this move this year is just multiple expansion. We've pushed them right back to 25, 30, 40, 50 plus times. And that's illogical, but it's because there's so much liquidity sloshing around. And, and that's why I think, look, crypto is where it is. Look, crypto's up 100%. Bitcoin up 100%. Yeah, I know. And people, I know. And people aren't, we're basically right where, the, the reason I have become like pretty excited about it, I feel like I've actually been, you know, relatively uh, constructive this whole time, at least since November, December, but we're up a hundred percent and there's not a whiff of euphoria. Not a None. Whiff. No, one's I know. no one is buying. GBTC volumes are dead. BITO it's volumes are dead. We run this little thing called Crip. No, no, I mean, none, zero. No one's so that, buying. That has to excite assets. you, right? I mean, it says it's a double and there's like no one that's, you know, particularly nope. excited about it. Nope. Very all- interesting. It's all people who are already in. There's no new volume from retail. Now, who is buying? Michael Saylor. Michael Saylor just bought another 1,000 BTC. He now owns one out of every 150 Bitcoin that will ever exist Mm. in history. He's basically created, I love this, he's actually created the Bitcoin ETF. Mm that the SEC won't approve. He has. And it's levered, which is even better because there's no way they would approve that. So, so, you know, his stock's up 150% off the bottom, not 100 because he's got the leverage. And so, so he's buying. Well, who else is buying? Well, CZ had to buy a bunch to, you know, give people the money that they they withdrew because he had a big run on the bank when he got sued by the US government. Again, just more FUD. So, 
big short squeezes. There are a lot of people who are short. Those short squeezes are over. Um, if we get even a whiff of demand, like normie demand, it's going to be unbelievable. And, and look, yeah. I, I think that's where we're headed. Like we are, we're going to see a, a parabolic move coming up to the having, or maybe following the having. I'm not sure exactly the timing, but sometime between you know May 9th of this year and May 9th of next year, we will see a FOMO rally just like every other cycle. And I don't know what the number is going to be. Look, I'm 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 very solidly in the camp that every having we get a zero, you know, ten hundred thousand, ten thousand. This one's a hundred thousand, and so that becomes the the anchor of value. You know, the 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 network increases by tenfold over a four year cycle. Um, but you can go way above that. I mean, way like way way. So, yeah. who knows? You know, at ten we got all the way to seventy. So that was way way too high. And then, you know, we never, but we never got back to 10. That's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. What do you think about, um, you know, in general, it's just also like law of large numbers, sort of like you can't, we're not going to keep, you know, the rate of increase for crypto over these cycles can't keep doing what it's doing. Otherwise, no. if you do the math in like three cycles, it's going to be. No, no. And, 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 and it hasn't, right? First cycle. I just did this, right? We get, we get a down year. Then we get three up years, down year, three up years, down year, three up years. So two cycles ago, the three up years were like 1,000%, 600%, and 400%. Then the down 84%. Then the three up years were like, you know, 300%, 400%, and 200%. Then a down year. And then, uh, you know, it was like 120%, 60%. And so that, to your point, the law of large numbers is kicking in. Now, we can still go up tenfold total, but it won't, we're not going to go up a hundredfold or 50 fold or even 20 fold. So I, I think what, what's really interesting is the way a Metcalf's law curve works, right? Is that slope does keep getting lower and lower. You know, you don't have the 60 degree slope, then the 45, then the 30, then the 20. And even when it's you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years from now, when the slope is only five or 10%, it's still going up. It's yeah. still increasing in value. Yeah. And it's on a very large number. So the, the total asset value grows, but the rate of increase slows. Yeah. I think people got it right. I mean, people have been saying this for as long as I've been in crypto, which is, you know, it's very risky. And, you know, the majority of these assets, people I say like 95% of these assets aren't going to be worth anything in 10 years. And I broadly think that's right. And I probably think what you need to get used to if you're investing in crypto is the big assets that people have a lot of conviction around, Bitcoin and Ethereum, those are not going to produce the, they're going to produce great returns, I think still, mm -hmm. but they're not going to be the mind numbing, you know, crazy nope. hundred, hundred X's. I mean, those days nope. are over, I think for both those assets, but on a risk adjusted basis, you know, you've de-risked an enormous amount for, for both of them. Um, so I think that's still pretty good. You know, there are a couple I'm, I'm very disappointed, Michael, that, that you don't think we're going to increase, uh, <laughs> over the last 14 years, Bitcoin has increased 68,192,810%.
And I'm very, yeah, so I don't, very disappointed that you don't think we're going to get that over the next. So, year. so unfortunately, I don't mean to fund here, but I don't. I don't think we're going to do that again. But uh, sixty-eight yeah. million percent. That's it's just yeah. mind-numbing number. And it's outstanding. And part of that is, I don't really count the first four years. I know I should, but but I don't really right because it was mm-hmm. a science project, and we're dealing in fractions of a penny. It wasn't real, right? It it wasn't it wasn't there. The last 10 years, it's real. And in the last 10 years, uh, eight of those 10 years, including this year, Bitcoin's the best performing asset of all assets. Over the whole 10-year period, it is the best performing asset. And and that's why I just, I'm befuddled when people still have zero exposure. I'm not saying you should have 100%. I mean, that, that's not logical, but, but zero is the wrong number. It's just you know the wrong what? number. I used to be befuddled about that and now I'm not anymore. I had a, um, when, when we used to host these like tiny little events in the be- very beginning of Blockworks, like first six or nine months or something, I ran into this guy who went there and we were talking about not just, you know, the old analogy that people use all the time, which is comparing crypto to the internet. Yeah. We were talking about Amazon. Well, you know, when Amazon had all these drawdowns, it was really volatile, yeah. multiple 90% drawdowns, et cetera. And look at Amazon. And this guy said, well, it's still too early to tell about Amazon. <laughs> you know, this guy, this guy still, you know, he's still doubting Amazon, you know, what, however long we are in. And, and, you know, that was a, a little bit, it took a little while for that to sink in with me. But what sunk in is that some people are just never going to wrap their minds around this stuff. And to just like circle back to where we started this interview, talking about talking about Rockefeller, one of the other, you know, things that resonated with me in the early days of the oil trade, Mark, it, it was the same, it was like 20 years in, people were still concerned. It was a very speculative industry, you know, renowned men of business didn't invest in it because they're worried about their reputation and yeah. it was rife for speculation. It's like, this, this stuff is just, you know, not everyone's a tech investor, right? There are whole, there are guys that have made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars only investing in bonds or things like steel yep. that they could touch with their hands. Some, some of this stuff is just never going to resonate with some people. And I've actually yeah. just like, you know what? I've just made my peace with that. And I've, I've, I know over a long period of time, it resonates with everyone who's like my age or below, you know, and that's just going to take some time to, it, it, for that. It to is a hundred percent true. The digital divide is real. Um, look, 29% of millennials own BTC, only 4% of boomers. And that ratio is not going to change dramatically. Um, I keep talking about this, right? My, my little granddaughter, you know, six months old. She's a Zoomer, right? A Gen A. Mm-hmm. And uh, she'll never have a physical wallet. She'll never use paper money. Not ever. Yeah. That's amazing, right? That, that's yeah. amazing. That, that is an amazing fact. And people are like, no, that's not true. I'm like, yeah, it is. She will never, ever touch paper money. Paper money is going to be gone probably within the next 24 months. And and, so? and the dystopian, and we'll talk about this on another show, but but the nightmare of CBDCs is is coming. I, mean, I it's think it's coming. coming too. Yeah, I think it's coming too. And I really hope it doesn't, but I think it's oh no, it's, it's coming. Going to no, 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 no. I'm yeah, telling yeah. you. Plan B actually tweeted about this. He said four five thirty three, illegal to own gold. He said twenty twenty three, illegal to own money, and. I don't. I actually think it's twenty twenty four, but doesn't matter. But it ain't. It ain't twenty fifty. Within the next twenty four months, it will be illegal. Just let that word hang in the air. It will be illegal to have a twenty dollar bill. 
That's a crazy thought. Yeah. And, and, and the reason it's crazy is when I have that $20 bill, and I don't use $20 bills very often, but I have privacy. I can do with that $20 bill whatever I want with no surveillance and no censorship. I don't, I don't have secrecy, right? I, I'm not doing anything illicit with it per se, but I have privacy. Privacy is good. Secrecy may be bad, but privacy is good. But if I have only CBDC, I have no privacy. Yeah. Now, I personally have given up most of my privacy voluntarily because I use my Visa card and I don't carry money around. Um, and I'm not doing anything bad that I, I care that, that they see. Um, but they have access to all of my transactions in theory. Now, I guess MasterCard and Visa would say, oh, we don't share that. Bullshit. You share. Um, if, if asked, you would share. Um, same thing with your bank records, right? They say, oh, you can't, you know, government can't get them. I don't know. If I read the Patreon. And look, this Restrict Act, if you are not terrified by the Restrict Act, you are not paying attention. And again, topic for another day. But the Restrict Act, it, look, the Patriot Act, at least they had the decency to disguise the malevolence by calling it Patriot. <laughs> right? This, Mark, that's like the lowest bar I've ever heard. For, this for <laughs> this <laughs> is a personal affront to the Bill of Rights. Yeah, I know. I, Bill of I actually, Rights says we have rights. This says, no, we can restrict your rights. If you have an app that we don't approve of, you go to jail. No due process. What? Yeah. My ownership I, of, of, an, of an asset can put me in jail with no due process? Really? I know. Now, I don't believe it's going to pass. But the fact that someone actually wrote that, Michael, is fucking crazy. I'm with I mean, you. that's literally crazy. You know, I think... I think it actually is a very challenging time to be, you know, part of a look, they're having to deal with something like crypto. They're going to have to deal with AI at the same time. You know, I haven't really brought it up that much on this podcast because you and I aren't like AI guys in this, unless maybe you're an investor in something like that. But, I, I mean, I, you know, I've only, I've only, I'm not I've got, an AI guy. I've got layman's sort of opinions on it, but man, it is going to be, it is, these are significant technological shifts. It's going to change the way that they need to, that they need to adopt an entirely new mind frame and way to regulate this stuff. That's why I've, I've really been on this crusade of like, I just do not want these geriatrics in, in, in office deciding this stuff. I'm sorry. It's, it, you know, at, at past a certain point, you know, I love my grandparents, but I don't think that, that they should be the I ones. don't want to make the rules. Yeah. I just don't want to make the rules. Mm -mm. I'm with you on it. Mm -mm. Nope. Mark, all the time we have for, for today, but uh, as always, my friend, Hey, great to see you again. This is, yeah. uh, I missed this. Good to it's be been back. Nice. Good to be yeah, back. Yeah, Good yeah, to know yeah. that I'm not, I'm not shadow banned on on the margin like i'm shadow banned on twitter it is crazy i i i got out of twitter jail for about two weeks mm. and i went right back in and back i in. i don't know what i did uh, mm. well i do i know what i did i i liked things that that other people say i shouldn't like but mm. it's amazing i mean i my twitter followership is is just dead flat i mean it's it's the algorithm. Like Elon doesn't really believe in free speech, and that was uh, just a narrative. To yeah, yeah. Um, all right, anyway, Mark. Let's end it. Best hour of my week. Cheers, buddy. Talk to you too.